Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we want to continue our study on the top of, topic of eternal security, especially as it relates to the high value of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And just as a quick review, I just each session, I want to just take a moment to review the gospel, our response to the gospel, and also define the terms that we're using here in terms of eternal security. And so, you know, the gospel is a simple message that oftentimes gets cluttered and muddled with lots of religious doublespeak. But the gospel is simply this, that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, died for your sins and rose again on the third day. We find this gospel clearly communicated in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 as the message that Christ preached. This is the gospel mentioned in Romans 1.16, which is described as the power of God unto salvation. This is the message and event and activity that Jesus Christ engaged in to save people from their sins and to save us uh, more, more generally from the problem of sin as a whole. Not only it's sin's penalty, but also sin's power and also sin's very presence one day. And so the gospel is God's solution to man's sin problem. And so how does man respond to the gospel? How do they benefit um, from the gospel in terms of what they need to do to respond? And um, the Bible's very clear on that too. Over 160 times, the word of God gives faith, belief, trust in, reliance upon. It's the, the same word, the Greek verb, pistuo, um, to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. And that if you do that, that one response ensures that you have eternal life. John three sixteen, a verse we're all very familiar with, says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the response that God desires to his son's finished work. Now, the term eternal security and assurance do not describe the same thing. Oftentimes people confuse those. They try to make them synonymous, eternal security with assurance of salvation. Eternal security reflects the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint, basically stating that God knows who and who is not saved at any moment in history. God knows that. And so it's very secure in the sense that that God doesn't forget. He doesn't change his mind. Once somebody has eternal life, which is life that lasts forever, then they're eternally secure from God's viewpoint. Now, assurance of salvation, uh, whereas eternal security reflected God's viewpoint of a person's salvation, assurance of salvation reflects the certainty of a person's salvation from man's viewpoint. And so we can see that man's assurance or man's viewpoint can fluctuate depending on whether or not man's understanding is in alignment with God's word. If man thinks for some reason that they have to live a certain way or have a level of ongoing faithfulness or a level of righteousness that they may obtain or continue or maintain in their life, they may or may not have assurance of their salvation and they may or may not be right regardless of how they feel about it. So the goal of this study and this series of studies is to take our viewpoint, man's viewpoint, and try to align it with God's viewpoint so that not only can we have assurance of salvation, but it's it's assurance based on the word of God, which is 
uh, God's viewpoint on how one is saved. And so I borrowed a definition from our friends at Duluth Bible Church for eternal security. And I like the way it's worded. It reads this, eternal security means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And so it just indicates that eternal security uh, reflects God's view on this situation that somebody who puts their faith in the finished work of Christ can not only know that they're saved, but they can also be confident that God will keep them saved, that they can't lose their salvation. And we began uh, last week to look at kind of setting the stage for the high value of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What did what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago was incredible. In fact, he did something that has such extremely high value that many times I don't believe that we 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 appreciate it in full. And so that's kind of the goal of this um, set of lessons regarding the high value of the work of Christ is to take hopefully your viewpoint of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And if you already view it at a at a 10 level, I want to take you to an 11. If you're at a seven, I want to take you to an eight. And we want to do this with the word of God and just emphasizing here. But to set the stage last week, we began to look at God's character. You know, God, we emphasized uh, really two character aspects, God's holiness and justice. Holiness just meaning he's perfectly sinless. He does nothing wrong. He's unique in that way and set apart for man in that way. But he's also just, meaning that he's fair. And that he never miscarries justice, that he's an executor of perfect justice, and that he gives everybody what they deserve. And we learned also from man's character that that everything I just said, put it in reverse. It's the complete opposite of God. Man is a rebel. Man is a sinner. And not only that, the Bible is clear that when man rebels against God and his standard, that there is a consequence. And that consequence is death. It was death in the Garden of Eden. With Adam and its death all throughout the Bible, and that's why the Bible is filled uh, with death. and And th- this is the reason why there's an issue that sin has caused. And so, mankind has a huge problem. God is holy and just; he he must punish sin. And, and if that's the case, and it is, how can man? escape the consequence if all have sinned and rebelled and if God administers perfect justice. And really the logical answer is that man will never be able to escape that consequence. And that should concern every person, really. But but God himself doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God himself doesn't want anybody to face the wages of sin, what they deserve. He doesn't want them to face this death penalty. And you know, this brings in another character trait of God. It's his love. He he loves the world. John 3, 16 says he doesn't want anybody to suffer the second death in the lake of fire. So what did he do in order not to violate his character traits of being holy and just? See, justice must be served. So how could God remain just and not punish the lawbreaker? Well, in Genesis three fifteen, God kind of hints towards his plan. He was going to send a promised deliverer, a savior to save mankind from the consequences of sin, which is death. And this is why the concept of substitutionary death 
is dominant in the Old Testament scriptures, starting in Genesis 3.21, where God killed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. And then all the way through the time of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, we see these animal sacrifices, the innocent lamb in the place of the guilty sinner. We see even from the instructions in Leviticus that uh, a man who was to bring an offering to the tabernacle or the temple was to slit the lamb's throat himself while he had his hand on the lamb's head, signifying it's my sins that are transferring to this animal. It's my sins that is causing the death of this animal. And so every sacrificial, um, uh, every, every person that brought a sacrifice in the sacrificial system was reminded of this connection that this animal, this innocent animal was dying in his or her place. And see, God gave justice to the lamb. That way he would not have to give justice to the one bringing the lamb. And he, and basically God gave justice to man's substitute. And so different types of animals fulfilled that function throughout the Old Testament period. But during the Old Testament period, we also learn from the scriptures some distinctives regarding these animal sacrifices. Number one, they could only temporarily cover sins, but they could never take away sin's penalty. It's like a bill that keeps on requiring more payment and more payment and more payment. And those of you that have ever had a house mortgage, you know kind of that feeling, you know, are you ever going to scratch that last check that pays the mortgage in full? Sometimes it doesn't feel like that's ever possible. And this was what the Old Testament system was like. It, it wasn't designed to take away sin's penalty. They were simply elaborate visual aids of substitution, an innocent animal or an an innocent, um, one day would be an innocent person, Jesus Christ, but an innocent animal dying for or in the place of the guilty one. And so these innocent animals would simply pointed forward to what the promised deliverer would do in full. Remember the sacrificial uh, animals of the Old Testament, their blood would simply cover sin or atone for sin. They could never take away sin. And so having that setting now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 goes into this comparison between the Old Testament sacrificial system and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And remember that Hebrews is really can be summarized by the word better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the Mosaic system. He's a better mediator of a better covenant who provided a better and complete salvation. Jesus Christ is better than the animal sacrifices. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews was trying to get across to his his readers because they were being tempted to go back to the animal sacrificial system, even though they had trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And notice in verse one, let's read the first four verses here. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so notice that the law and its sacrificial system was simply a shadow of things to come. It wasn't the crisp, clear picture of God's solution, which was to come. And notice a few things about the sacrificial system. In verse 1, we, we see that they were offered year by year. In other words, they were ongoing sacrifices, never fully solving the sin penalty issue. We also see in verse 1 that they could never make those who engaged in them perfect. In other words, the ongoing sacrifices of animals could not accomplish the end goal. That's what perfect means. That means completion, reaching the end goal. And these animal sacrifices could not accomplish the end goal of the forgiveness of sins penalty or providing a righteousness equal to God's righteousness so that somebody could um, go into heaven. Verse two, we notice that those who offered these ongoing sacrifices were still conscious of their sins and sins penalty. In other words, Mentally, they could never gain assurance because the final price had not yet been paid. And then verse three, we see that these very sacrifices designed to illustrate substitutionary atonement were the very sacrifices that always kept sin and sin's penalty at the forefront of everyone's mind. They couldn't, they couldn't shake it. Every time they brought a sacrifice, it was a reminder that it was not paid in full. It was a reminder that this there was a substitutionary atonement that was to come that would pay it in full, but but the sacrifice they were offering that day was, was not going to take care of it once and for all. And then we see in verse four that the animal sacrificial system could not take away sins or their ultimate penalty. Now in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, it's very interesting because... Uh, the author uses this word perfect in verse one. And he says the animal sacrificial system could not make it perfect. But go jump down with me in verse 14. Speaking of the offering of Jesus Christ, it says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Notice too that at the end of verse four, it says that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And yet, when you look at um, when you look at Jesus Christ in verse twelve of chapter ten, it says, "But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God 